Is it a cause and effect? Are elk just filling a space that mule deer are not able to, or are elk pushing mule deer out of that space? The more I read, the more I think it's the latter, that elk, they're just out competing. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Good morning, Rockslide. Robbie Denning here, flying solo again today. Got a few things planned for the podcast today. Might not be a very long podcast, but we are going to do some reading today. I know many of you don't read. Do you know how I know that? Because you're listening to a podcast, and I'm the same way. I have to force myself to read, but reading is good. Reading is good. It engages your mind differently than listening to a podcast or, you know, watching a video, things like that. And I think we need it all. Um, I like podcasts because I can be, it's the only media I can consume while I'm doing something else. So I've been building this little horse barn out back and, you know, catching up on all my podcasts because I can do that while I'm doing something else. But if I really want to get something deep in my brain, I need to read it. And so I've pulled a few things out this week that I'm going to read to you guys and uh, has to do with uh, elk being over objective, what we can do about it, what we're seeing in the different states, and then also do some more reading from my book. Um, before we get into that, though, um, it's May, so we're talking a lot about shooting at Rock Slide, both our cold bow challenge, I talked about that a little bit on the last podcast, and now moving into our cold bore challenge, which is very similar, but it uh, has to do with rifles rather than bows. Um, our cold bow is just about ready to wrap up. I was talking to Sam last night, uh, real unlucky, Tipsy Tuesday Sam. Uh, he's one of the main moderators on the cold bow, um, and there's a bunch more, Travis Bertrand. Howard, me. I mean, it just everybody participates in this because it takes a lot of effort to keep track of 100 shooters. But Sam was saying last night that uh, we, we filled, we've hit all 100 of them, and most of the guys have shot all five of their arrows. That's a little early this year. It seems like a lot of times we're chasing quite a few guys to get them to finish. But there's been a lot of good energy in the cold bow this year. Uh, it, it's a good thread to go read uh, the question and answer thread, everybody's feedback on what they learned about it, and it'll just make you a better archer. But as we were talking about some of the things that happened during Cold Bow and, you know, what we learned, things like that, uh, one of our members, a uh, longtime member, Corbland, Corbland, uh, yeah, we all have code names on Rockside. None of us really know our real names. Uh, but Corbland is going to assemble all the stats from this year's Cold Bow Challenge, and we'll publish it uh, once we uh, wrap up the Cold Bow Challenge and everybody's qualified. And we're going to take a look at uh, what were the percent hits at the at their MER, uh, maximum effective range. You know, how many people out of the five arrows made all five arrows? I can tell you right now, going through the challenge at a glance, most did not. I know I didn't. I ended up uh, finishing at three out of five. Uh, so, it you know, it's not common to drop an arrow in there, but we're going to have those stats. We'll have an average MER that everybody shot at. A lot of these guys are Western hunters, so it's kind of 45 yards 
and north of that. Um, few eastern hunters are shooting a little bit shorter than that, but we ask everybody to really push themselves in the cold bow challenge. And, uh, you know, with modern compound bows and everything, I mean, you know, 20 yards is nothing anymore. You don't see that at all in the cold bow unless they're shooting trad. And uh, there there is a trad uh, division in the cold bow challenge. Really neat to see these trad archers come out. Uh, uh, Trumpkin the Dwarf, you know who I'm talking about. He's been on the rock slide for a long time. He shoots in both the trad and the compound uh, division. So a lot to learn from him. Uh, I, again, another cool screen name, Trumpkin the Dwarf. That's, that's easy to remember. Um, but anyways, uh, watch for that. I'm sure Sam will talk about that on Tipsy Tuesday, uh, what those final stats were. Uh, percent broadhead versus field points. We want to take a look at that too. Uh, just, just some cool stuff. Uh, in there. But I think what most people walk away from the cold bow challenge with is I'm not as good as I thought I was. And I, I think that's a good thing because that gets us really thinking in the woods, uh, thinking about stalking in closer, looking for a better shot, understanding our limitations. And then, uh, as I said, we're going to be moving into the cold bore. Uh, that's going to be for rifles, uh, two shots. I talked about that uh, on the last podcast. You get two shots on different days, uh, no practice in between. That's going to start on June 3rd. Uh, go to our long range forum. You will see an entire Q&A thread on there hosted by Justin Crossley. Um, he'll be leading the challenge. A uh, lot of guys are getting geared up for that. Guys are out setting targets this week. Uh, going to start practicing. Uh, cold bore will be just like cold bow. If you want to do well at it, you need to practice before the starting bell because once you start, you can't back up. Um, I did make an error in the podcast last week when I was talking about the cold bore. For the cold bore and the cold bow, you actually still get credit if you miss, all right? Because this is really a challenge, not a contest. So if you miss, we, st we still uh, count you. However, in the cold bore, for people that want to shoot further than 600 yards, I, ma I made a little error in that. The, what the rules state is if you want to shoot longer than 600 yards, you do have to hit both your shots at 600 before you can move on. Okay. So your first two shots, 600 yards, you have to keep them in the 10 inch vital, both shots. If you do, you get an entry in the drawing for the prizes, thousands of dollars in prizes. Can you say Swarovski, ATC? That's the lead prize, but there's a bunch more besides that. So you hit twice at 600 and you get an entry in. Then you can move to any range you want beyond 600 that you think is your maximum effective range. So if you've been on Rock Slide the last five years telling us that, you know, a thousand yards is a cakewalk, you know, you could do that in your sleep, uh, you know, your little girl can do it. That's great. Here's your chance to prove it, but you got to hit both shots at 600. And the mistake I made in the last podcast is I said you also have to hit both shots beyond 600. That's not true. It just reverts back to the standard rules of... Um, for the cold bow and the cold bore, if you miss your shots longer than 600, we still give you credit for trying, all right? Uh, you get credit for the public embarrassment of missing your shots, all right? But if you qualify below 600, or excuse me, at 600, and then you go longer than 600, uh, even if you miss those two, you get 
two entries in the drawing for the prizes. So it's a great way to do it. Justin will have the official rules out here in the next week on the Long Range Forum, but get ready, June 3rd. This is for hunting rifles, by the way. Uh, that That's what both the cold bore and the cold bow is about. You don't see people in the cold bow with their target bows. Uh, that kind of defeats the purpose. We're really looking to test our hunting equipment, so it'll be no different in the cold bore. Hope to see you there. I will be there shooting my old trusty 270 Winchester Short Magnum. Um, I like the, the 270 Winchester Short Magnum for a lot of reasons, but really that short stubby case kind of reminds me of my own body. And so that's that's why I like it. I just I just feel uh, like it's, it's kind of like my soulmate cartridge. You know, it's short and stubby like me, so I really like it. Um, I've written a lot of articles on the 270 Winchester Short Magnum. It's a great deer cartridge, all kidding aside. Um, I, I, I'm never going to say it's the best, but I really like what I get. Magnum performance for less recoil. I'm not a muzzle brake guy. Um, a lot of outfitters don't like muzzle brakes because we've had our head blown off enough by them that they kind of scare us. So I've, I've stayed away from them. And uh, the 270 lets me have, the 270 Winchester Short lets me have Magnum performance without having to do a muzzle brake. Uh, that's just me though. Uh, there'll be a ton of guns in the cold board. That's what's so cool about these um, challenges is you get a uh, jump in and see what everybody's shooting because that's a requirement for them to post, you know, tell us about your equipment. So for the cold bore, you're going to see all kinds of different rifles, calibers, scopes, you know, guys dialing. Um, I'm shooting hash marks. I won't be dialing. Um, all kinds of different stuff. It's just a great learning environment, just like Rockslide was uh, designed to be. So... Okay, um, on back onto the archery, uh, I came across a great article the last week. I told you we're going to be doing some reading on this podcast. This will be the only reading some of you get this month. Um, glad glad to help you. Uh, one of our members, uh, backcountry preacher. I told you we all have cool names on Rockslide. Backcountry preacher sent. Uh, I posted it on the Cold Bow Challenge, an article link, and it was by John Dudley. For those of you that don't know John Dudley, he's a professional archer. Uh, his Instagram page is Knock on TV. Um, it says that he's an elite level coach and he's dedicated to teaching archery to the world. So I went and read that article yesterday and it's really good. Um, it is, I got the title of the official title of it here, uh, Better Long Range Groups. And I thought this was a great article to share with people as we move out of the cold bow challenge. You know, everybody's kind of established what their MER is right now in May, uh, maybe with some practice and some reading and some dedication this summer, you can actually extend it. But that's what this article was about, was, was improving yourself as a long-range shooter. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll read the intro and then just kind of hit on some of the high points. But it's posted on the Sitka website, just sitkagear.com. Type in better long-range groups. It'll come up. All right. Highly recommend you really dive into that article as we're wrapping up the cold bow. And uh, maybe you can come back, do your own private cold bow uh, this summer. A lot of guys do. They'll go test their equipment, tweak their equipment, go out, test their MER. And a lot of times they've improved it simply because they've had more time to shoot. That's the biggest takeaway I've had from the cold bow is, man, you can't let yourself get stale. I was talking about Trumpkin the Dwarf. He said that's one of the main things he've learned about uh, trad archery is you, you just can't 
not shoot. It's almost a daily discipline. Um, for those of you that followed Aaron Snyder, he switched from compound to trad and got very good at it. But that was one of the things he was doing. He was shooting almost every day. So don't be surprised if later this summer with some discipline and, and shooting more, if you're not able to stretch out that MER. But let's, let's jump into John Dudley's article here. Got to get over to the right page. Got all these tabs open here. Okay, Better Long Range Groups by John Dudley. This was posted April 5th of 2023. There's a primal satisfaction about seeing things fly. For many of us, the flight of an arrow is totally awesome to watch. The longer the flight, the better. Am I right? Long shots are simply in our DNA. It entertains our core. Even in the movies, the best drama is seeing a line of archers fill the sky with arrows raining in from above. In recent years, there's been a big growth in extending your range as an archer or bow hunter. Some archery events use longer, more challenging shots as a draw. Although some may question its ethics in bow hunting, I would argue its importance. I will use my own path as an example. I started competing in archery as a teenager as a way to get better as a hunter. I think many of us can relate to that. As my hunter, excuse me, as my career expanded from local 3D events to global competition, I quickly was submerged in shooting longer distance than I ever thought was needed. My first international gold medal was at an event where we competed at 90 meters or 99 yards. What I learned from this training is that my archery had never been better once I learned to do it. But that came with a learning curve of the equipment and better technique. Forcing yourself to become an to become accurate at longer ranges simply doubles down on your accuracy on the closer shots, the bow hunting shots. What I have learned is there's no better magnifying glass for your archery technique and archery gear than distance. The further you are from the target, the more your mistakes and flaws are magnified. The bottom line is, if you can get good at long range, you are exceptional at every range and twice as good close. What I would like to do is show you a few simple tweaks you can make to set up your maximum accuracy downrange. These are things that I slightly modify on my archery setups during the off season so I can train more at the longer distances as preparation for the hunting season. Okay, so that's the intro to the article right there. And then I'll just jump into some of his high points. But notice what he said. These are things that he does during the off season so he can train more at the longer distances in preparation for the hunting season. Well, that's what we're in right now. Uh, we're still in the off season. Most of the guys on rock slide really start freaking out about mid-July. If, if they haven't shot the cold bow challenge, if they haven't been going to tack, if they haven't been going to their local shoots, it's panic mode, all right? Um, and we want to help those guys too. That's really why we host the cold bow challenge to get people out earlier. But there's a lot of guys that are you know, shooting pretty much year round. But, so, but, but even for them right now, still the off season, uh, there's no pressure to change your equipment around. It's not a big deal if you try something and it doesn't work. So think about that as he goes through these things here. Back into the article. The first thing I adjust for having better groups downrange is my sight picture. This starts with your front sight choice. You need a sight that will allow you to move it down for aiming at longer shots, but also give you a more refined aiming spot. I have a spot hog NE scope that allows me to roll the dial to any yardage that my arrow clearance will allow for. What I also like about this sight is that you have the ability to shoot a multi-pin housing or reduce it down to a smaller aperture with a single pin, which I recommend. This really helps improve finite aiming on a target that is further away. With a single pin and a 
where you can keep the target visible while aiming and you won't be blocking what it is you're trying to hit. If you have a larger housing, multiple pins set up, you may find it to be cluttered and covering it up too much, covering up too much of the target to really have a clear, steady aim. I swap the big sight out for a smaller one with a small, precise aiming fiber. So that's the first thing he's done. Once he's done that, then I change out my peep size to a slightly smaller peep to perfectly match the diameter of my front sight. You may ask, why change the peep? The rule of the thumb with peep is size is this. The smaller the peep, the smaller the groups. The reason for this is that you should also have your front sight perfectly centered when looking through it at your peep sight. The smaller the peep hole, the more you are forcing to perfectly center the front sight in that hole. A smaller hole forces the front sight, rear sight alignment that is very tight. I can totally agree with that. And it was something when I first started shooting a slider, uh, a black gold slider back in 2014, um, I had an archery coach point out to me that I, I wasn't getting my housing centered in my peep. I, I think he could tell by how fast I was shooting. And I, I just didn't even think about it. I was just looking at the pins. And, uh, you know, I should have known this. I've shot peep sights on muzzleloaders for years. Everything is about alignment, you know, getting that eye to align the, through the center of the peep. And that housing where your, where your pins are, your pin guard, as some people call it, uh, should be lined up perfectly in your peep. So that's one of the first things I do in my shot sequence is when I look through my peep is I get that housing lined up. And and I immediately started shooting better uh, once that was pointed out. I know a lot of guys know that, but a, a lot don't. That's why I want to talk about it. And that was one of the first things uh, that he had in here. Um, let's see. He goes on. Next up to change on my gear during the off-season long-distance training is my pulling weight. I know some of you may want to quote, practice exactly how you hunt. But hear me out. Shooting at full max pull weight doesn't allow most people to get in high numbers of reps. Reps will bring you repeatability and more accuracy. I was forced into this method because in some target archery rules, you can only shoot a 60 pound max pull. I had no choice but to shoot less weight than I hunted with. What I learned is that honing in your technique is much easier when you're not under so much load at full draw. I can simply shoot longer distances and more often. Lower poundage is easier on the bow, the body, and the target. When you shoot at longer ranges, you will probably notice that your, that your time aiming on target will naturally be a little longer than aiming close. It's because you are seeing more movement and you will learn to spend a little more time on the importance, importance of lining up that front sight picture, leveling the bow, etc. Um, and I agree with him on this too. I th that's one reason I love this article is there's just so many things that he reinforced in there that I, you know, that I thought for years, but I just wasn't sure, you know, is this just me thinking this or, but I've always turned my bow down, uh, in the off season. Um, I, uh, my, my Athens that I was shooting previous to this Matthews was a 70 pound bow. So I hunted at 70 pounds, but I would turn it down into the low sixties during the off season. And, um, what, you know, the first, if, if you've been off for a month or two from shooting your bow, you know, the first couple times you pull your bow at your hunting weight, you really notice it, you know, especially if you're 53, like me, you know, creak. Oh, geez. It feels like you know, so much weight there, you know, after you pull it a few times, you kind of get used to it again. But I find, I found by turning it down, I just wasn't thinking about 
about the weight. I just was able to get into the sight picture sooner, you know, go through my shot sequence. And it's just common sense to condition your muscles with lower weight to higher weight. I mean, this is a tenet of personal training. You know, you, you, it's an overload principle. And so it makes sense with a bow, you know, start at the low weight. And then what? that's why it's important to start shooting now or earlier. You can move that weight up as the, as the summer goes. And that's what I did for the cold bow. This new Matthews has got such a forgiving draw cycle that um, I went ahead and set it at 65. And uh, it, it, it pulls at 65 as easy as my other bow pulled at 70. Maybe that's just in my head, and I and I want to think that because I spent a lot of money on a new bow. I don't know, but uh, but anyways, I did start it lower, and then I'll slowly work that up this summer. However, after reading this article, I might play around with dropping it just a little bit more and trying some of these longer distance shots, and then work it back up as as the summer goes along. Um. He's got a few more things in the article about, you know, you'll notice um, at longer distances, the combination of veins and fletches and point weight and FOC and all that other stuff. And, you know, wind, winds effect at, at long distance. Those are just all things that are just good to process in your mind and, and learn during the off season. So I highly recommend you go read this article. Remember, it's on the uh, sitkagear.com uh, experience long, better long range groups uh, by John Dudley. Check that out. It's a great article. I think it's going to make you a better archer. And uh, let us know on uh, on Rockslide what, what you think. If you're, if maybe some of you guys I know are all already trying this. Some of you guys are, are way ahead of us on this. Um, but for those of you that haven't been shooting this, you know, give it a month or two and then give us some feedback on the archery forum on Rockslide of, you know, what you're thinking, what did you learn? Uh, I'm going to give it a try too, and I'll, I'll be reporting back and letting you guys know what I came up with. Okay. Um, moving on. Uh, I told you we wanted to talk about elk versus mule deer. And you're probably already learning on this on this podcast, on the episodes that I host, that uh, it's pretty much a mule deer podcast for me. You know, that's what I think about. I want to learn as much as I can about mule deer. Uh, I love mule deer. I, I want to pass on a love for mule deer, the next generation. Uh, ultimately, that's what uh, makes species survive. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, sent Central Africa, uh, Russia, uh, here, whatever. If people care about the species, if there's a value on the species, it survives. When there's no value on the species, then it people forget about it. They don't do things to conserve the habitat, uh, all the things that go into conserving a species. And so um, it's it's more than just hunting for me for mule deer. It's, it it's truly is a love for mule deer. But part of learning about mule deer is learning what they're up against. You know, there's I don't have rose-colored glasses on. I try to be a pretty positive guy when it comes to mule deer hunting. Um, I always try to find the bright side in, in all of it. You know, the glass is, has got to be uh, half full for me, or I just, I, it, it's hard enough as it is, you know, to go out in the field with a defeated attitude. You know, all the mule deer are gone. It sucks. There's not going to be any deer, more, more people, less tags. If I, if I just am constantly living in that world, 
I just don't even want to go. And I know many guys that don't. They've just given up. They, they get into that mindset and they're done with it. And I just don't want to go down that road. So, you know, I read a lot. I, I try to rub shoulders with people that are studying mule deer. You've caught that on some of my podcasts with some of the guests I've had. And, and that's what I want to continue on today with this elk versus mule deer theme. And I got another article uh, sent to me. This was by one of our uh, Rock Slide members. And uh, brother, forgive me, your screen name is a little bit confusing. So if I hack it here, it's it's in Spanish. It's Grabar Banado Burra 227. I think that means great big uh, mule deer 227 inches, I think is what that means. Good guy. He, he hits me on Instagram all the time. He's on Rock Slide. But he sent me an article that was published by, I want to make sure I got this right here. Yeah, Buck Rail. That is a media company out of Wyoming. And uh, the, the article was written by Mike Koshmerl, K-O-S-H-M-R-L. And it was published April 24th. Just Google it. Buckrail, B-U-C-K-R-A-I-L, Buckrail. Uh, the title of it is Thriving Elk, Struggling Deer. Coincidence? New research suggests not. Now, this is not the first time I've seen an article like this. I've seen a lot of articles like this. I remember, for those of you that used to follow Ryan Hatch's Muley Crazy videos, I mean, I'm talking early 90s, okay? And uh, I, I remember kind of the first time I heard about elk could be negatively impacting deer was on one of his videos. I don't even remember what he said, but I just remember thinking, what? You know, because, you know, where I grew up, it was like hardly any elk at that time. How could they impact deer? And, uh, well, 25, 30 years later, 32 years later, whatever it is now, uh, boy, I have to agree, uh, more elk, less deer. And, you know, we've talked about this on some of the other podcasts, you know, is it a cause and effect? Are elk just filling a space that mule deer are not able to, or are elk pushing mule deer out of that space? The more I read, the more I think it's the latter, that elk, they're just out competing them. And uh, so I'm going to go through this article with you, much like I just did on the Dudley article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read a big chunk of it and kind of give you the feel for it. You should really go read it yourself and uh, get up to speed on this. You're going to recognize some of the names in this. Kevin Monteith, he's the researcher we keep talking about. Uh, that's why we like him. He's always in the in the mix of all of this stuff, him and his doctorate uh, fellows at Oh, forgive me. I think they're, yeah, University of Wyoming. Uh, they're, they're, they're running the deer, uh, ecology project. It'll talk about that in this article. So the study in all things about uh, deer and elk interaction, uh, deer interaction with other species, with the landscape. Go back on some of the podcasts that I've put up the last couple of months. You can, you can listen in on some of those. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. It's the exclusive app of many of the Rockslide staff, including myself. Some of the features of the Onyx Hunt app are nationwide public and private land boundaries, topographic and 3D maps, track your route, location, and elevation profile, waypoints, lines, and area shapes, save maps for offline use, and create custom map layers. While many of the competitors have similar features, I find one of the biggest benefits in using the Onyx Hunt app is that my friends have it. 
Nothing more painful than trying to share a waypoint with someone who doesn't have the app. Another thing I've noticed with Onyx, it's pretty much glitch-free. Once you learn how to use the app, you will experience very few, if any, glitches in the app. We find on the Rockslide Forum, the guys that are having glitches with Onyx or any of the apps, they just don't know how to use it. Once you learn how to use Onyx, it will be there for you. Some of the member benefits you get with being with Onyx are top rut draw odds. They just added that in 2023. Top rut provides some of the most comprehensive draw odds information in the industry. Onyx is also offering constant upgrades like track trim. When they released that last summer, it really cleaned up my app because I was the guy that would go back to camp with my app on and walk around camp for two hours. And then when I would notice my track, it had these big scribble lines in it. Now you can trim that off. They're constantly offering similar upgrades. So if you're ready to make the jump, head over to onxmaps.com, use the Rockcast promo code, Rockcast, R-O-K-C-A-S-T, save yourself 20%. But anyways, diving into this article, findings emerging from an intensive years-long Wyoming research project are beginning to substantiate suspicions that elk may be thriving on Western landscapes at the expense of widely struggling mule deer. More is not always better, University of Wyoming ecology professor Kevin Monteith told Wyofile. In this situation, with deer and elk, we may not be able to have our cake and eat it too. We may not be able to have robust, large populations of elk and robust, large populations of deer. Monteith's remarks reflect preliminary data out of this lab that show a distinct inverse correlation between the amount of body fat female muleys gain during the summertime and their proximity to elk. In other words, the closer deer live to elk, the skinnier they get on average, and not just by a little bit. The difference measured out to about two percentage points of fat gain, which can make the difference between life and death. How fat animals are plays a pretty key role in their survival, Monteith said. Two percentage points of body fat in autumn could influence overwinter survival by 10%. For an adult female, that's a pretty big deal. And for mule deer herds, it's a big deal too. Even a 5% downward swing in overwinter survival among female deer, Monteith said, can have a legitimate effect on a population. Many of the findings aren't yet published, but the science is far enough along that the Wyoming Game and Fish Department is acting on it and is in the process of identifying areas to knock down elk numbers in hopes of helping deer. Uh, If you do go read that article, uh, you'll see there's a backlink in there uh, highlighted to knock down elk numbers. And I followed that link out and it just talks about some places in Wyoming, uh, Little Mountain area, I believe is what it linked to about uh, the conflict of elk and deer there and how those elk really really need to be decreased and some of the things that the state is doing to do that. But back to the article here. Wildlife managers and big game hunters have long suspected an interplay on the range between elk and mule deer, two native ungulate species trending in the opposite directions. In Wyoming and beyond, bigger-bodied, adaptable elk are on the upswing, with populations stretching above objectives to record levels. And the species is thriving in developed areas and varied landscapes, even in places where they're not welcomed. It's the doldrums, meanwhile, for mule deer, a species that's less able to cope with disturbances. 
In Wyoming, the population has fallen 500,000 mule deer around the turn of the century down to 300,000 a day. And numbers are poised to slip further yet in the wake of a winter that's decimating some herds. So that turn of the century, I've, I've got to assume they're talking about the you know, 2000, uh, 2000, the last 20 years, uh, 23 years, I guess it would be now. I, I'm, I'm sure they don't mean the 1900. Uh, but anyways, uh, so that's a drop of 200,000 mule deer. And um, it, it, the article goes on. I'm going to stop right there because it's kind of got some of the high points that I'm going to jump into some other articles with but uh it's on the just type in buck rail and uh thriving elk struggling deer and that should come up go read the entire article but uh, a, th a few things in there that they said um it, it said that adaptable elk are on the upswing with population stretching above objectives to record levels Okay, so is, is this just happening in Wyoming? Uh, you heard me talking on the podcast a few weeks ago with Randy Larson, uh, a doctorate in wildlife biology from uh, BYU. It was a great podcast. I uh, learned a lot from him. But I, I did just a short segment in there where I was talking about um, a, a flight I took last summer that was down around Flaming Gorge, kind of that part of Wyoming down there, and uh, about the herd of elk that I saw. You know, and this was in early July. Um, you know, I was flying pretty high, and I could see a dust cloud down below me, and I thought they must be moving cattle down there. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, probably couple thousand feet high enough that it was it was hard to, to see make out individual animals but as i watched it for you know five seconds as i flew by i finally realized it was a herd of elk and we're talking 10 to 15 elk deep you know wide across strung out at least a mile as far out as i could see i could see that dust cloud you know and i was high enough i couldn't you know, make out it, each individual elk. I'm pretty sure it was all cows and calves, you know, that time of year that they're in gigantic herds. And it was just, it was the biggest herd of elk I've ever seen in my life. You know, I've, I've, I've lived in Idaho my whole life, hunted a lot. You know, I'm a pilot. I've, I've been over winter ranges in the winter, you know, summer ranges in the summer. I've never seen anything like that. And this is one of those areas that they're, they're having trouble with those elk, with, with, with high elk numbers. Um, but is it just in Wyoming that this is happening? Well, I don't think so. And I've been talking about it in Idaho. I've, I've been involved with our fishing game for years. And, you know, even though wolves got introduced to Idaho in the mid nineties, and there are a few problem areas, um, with, with elk objectives. And it, some of it seems to be the areas that don't have very productive habitat either. The, I think they call it a predator pit. You know, the, the predators are just able to keep the elk on their heels and they never can get, a, get ahead. That, that is happening. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, but I went and pulled some other articles from Idaho and Colorado uh, just to just to see what the official word is on this. Now, everything they had published was through 2020. So there, there's some missing data from 21 and 22. It'll catch up. I can tell you, besides this hard winter that we just went through, there's no reason that the elk didn't continue to increase between 21 and 22, uh, based on what I see. And um, I also pulled a an article from Onyx, and uh, so I'll just I'll just read you what what it says here from Idaho. 
Elk herds currently are within or above management objectives in 16 of 22 elk management zones that have established numeric objectives for the number of cow elk. Okay. Hunting opportunity in these zones range from trophy quality bull hunts to extra cow hunts. In zones currently below objective, Fish and Game is working hard to improve elk survival and increase the population by reducing or eliminating cow harvest, adjusting bull harvest, and intensively managing predators to reduce the impacts of predation on those herds. Good job, Idaho. I know they've done that. Um, but did you notice 16 of the 22 management zones are at or above objective? That's pretty good, man. Go, go find 16 of 22 deer units that are at or above objective. So in a big, big chunk of Idaho, the elk are are doing really well. And, uh, you know, it is that, again, is that cause and effect? Is the elk doing well, causing the deer to decrease? I didn't pull the numbers on, on current uh, Idaho deer populations, but the word on the street is in a lot of areas they're down, especially after this hard winter. So that, that makes Wyoming and Idaho, you know, big chunks of them at or over objective. Let's jump into Colorado. Same thing, uh, th this article that I pulled, it went through 2020, so there could be some updated information coming out after, after that, but I think this is going to be pretty close. And by the way, Colorado is not at their all-time peak for elk. That was in 2001 when they hit 100 and, or excuse me 305,000 elk in 2001. In 2018, the last number stated in this paper that I read, they were at 287,000 elk. Uh, so Idaho, I think, has 120,000. Colorado has, you know, two and a half times that much. Not quite two and a half times that much. You know, there's a lot of elk in Colorado. Um, and it said uh, CPW has intentionally reduced elk populations to achieve population objectives set for each herd. Currently, 22 of 42, that's 52% of elk herds, are still above their current population objectives. Okay, so there's there's three states I just pulled it from, and you know the trend is is up in all of them. Onyx published an article, a good article. We republished it on Rockslide. I thought it was such a good article here. Um, it was called Elk Draw Trends, Onyx Study of Western U.S. Data 2018 to 2022. Um, and it, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'll, I'll read you some of the graphs. Uh, one of them, uh, Elk Draw Trends, and the Western elk population was up 5% in that time. Um, but the total limited entry bull tags was down two and a half percent. So we got a, a, an increasing elk population and bull tags are coming down. That's probably more of a, so, a social pressure, you know, bigger bulls, stuff like that. Um, but they didn't have anything on, on cow tags. But if I jump down to... Their Western elk population by year. Follow me on this. 2017, we are, uh, I'm just going to round to the nearest thousands here. So they were 780,000. 2018, 781,000. This is Westwide, by the way. 781,000. 2019, 809,000. My goodness, that's a big jump. And then 2020, also the last year that data was available, 818,000 elk. I mean, elk are kicking butt. They really are. And uh, I, I want to make sure I'm not paying this podcast as an elk hater. I'm not at all. Elk are cool. Elk are cool. I don't hunt them 
personally, although I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, just that's just my dedication to buck hunting and just haven't really had the time. You know, I've been raising kids for 20 years, you know, had twins. Um, and along with a three-year-old, and that just kind of takes the wind out of you. And uh, my wife and I are, are are working together on that. And it took it took a lot of time and planning, and I didn't want to give up buck hunting. And so that's what I focused on. I didn't hunt elk. Uh, I think the last elk tag I had was 2004, uh, and I didn't fill it. Um, gosh, before that, I think the last elk I shot was probably in the late 90s, I think. I mean, I just, I just went a long time unplugged from it. But that was not because I didn't like it. I mean, elk hunting's awesome, especially archery elk hunting and, you know, hunting during the rut. And and even late season elk hunting uh, for bulls is really cool. And uh, I just got away from it, didn't think much about it. But over the last couple of years, a couple of things have changed. My kids are getting bigger, um, getting getting a, a little more free time. And it's not that I really want to hunt elk, but watching what is happening to the amount of elk in a lot of areas that I hunt, it's just up and up and up. And a lot of the places I hunt are over objective on elk. You know, they're part of that 16 out of 22 that are, that are at or over objective in Idaho. And, you know, and, and then, you know, with Wyoming, some of the places I've hunted, same thing, Colorado, same thing. I just always end up where there's a lot of elk. In the last couple of years, I just really started thinking, you know, I should, I, I love deer meat. You know, I'm one of those guys. I won't apologize for it. I think buck meat is awesome. I don't. I can shoot a stinky old buck in November, and I can still make him taste good. That's a gets down to to dry aging. I learned it from uh, Chef John McGannon. If you've re read my second book, I got a whole chapter in there on it. I've talked about it a lot on Rockslide. Dry aging works. They use it for beef, and beef they they don't exercise at all. They just walk around in the corral and stand in their own poop. Where you know deer are wild super athletes and uh, low body fat percentages. Um, they, their muscles are conditioned, you know, 150 mile migration, some of them go on. So dry aging in, if, if they use it in beef, it's even ultra important, more important than deer and elk because it, uh, softens the fibers. It breaks down the muscle fibers and it mellows out the taste. A lot of the strong taste in deer comes from the blood. So in dry aging, that's what you're doing is you're drying out the blood. And this takes a while. My deer, 21 to 28 days. I think I've gone as long as 33 days. Um, I don't eat them. I, they hang uh, 32 or 33 to 40 degrees. Uh, make sure you, if you start doing this, you pay attention to what I just said. Don't go over 40 degrees. You'll ruin your deer and you'll be mad at me. If you go under 33, then it doesn't age. It's just frozen. But anyways, by, by doing that, I've, I've been able to make good quality game meat. And the reason I'm telling you all this is I've been perfectly happy eating deer all these years. All right. Um, I tease Ryan Avery a lot. He's a big time elk hunter. You know, I'm always telling him, you know, elk tastes better than deer. I, I'm mostly just just jabbing at him. I, I will admit, elk is great. Milder flavor. You know, it's not a strong a strong flavored meat. I personally prefer deer, but you know, I'll never argue with anybody. Elk, elk tastes great. I love elk steak and elk burger. And so, all these years, you know, some of the pressure in filling tags was I, I. It's not just for the antlers. I mean, I think sometimes people think that's all I'm about. Oh, I love big bucks, and the great thing about a big buck, you get twice the meat off a big buck as you do a two point. And plus, I love to hunt. So if I shoot a little buck on the first couple of days, I'm done. Or you know, if I 
keep hunting for big bucks, I get a lot of days in every year. Uh, but some of the pressure to pull the trigger was always like, man, my freezer is getting empty. And that was part of this slump that I keep talking about the last couple of years. I was super picky because in 2019, um, I killed two, let's see, I killed a buck, a five-year-old buck, and my son killed two bucks. So we had three deer in the freezer and uh, that took us a couple of years to get through. So I was able to be pickier, but it was during that couple of years, I'm like, wow, there are so many elk. I just cannot believe everywhere I go, you know, there's 50, there's 75, there's 80, there's 100. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I'm not exaggerating, you guys. I've been a lot of these areas I hunt, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, even even Nevada, which I had a tag in a couple of years ago. I'm just shocked at the number of elk. And I started thinking, you know, I really should lean on the elk for my meat, uh, cow elk, um, and 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 really can be even more pickier deer hunting because that way if I, you know, go a year without getting a deer, it's not a big deal. We're still going to have wild game in the freezer, which I still think is the, the best meat for you. And so uh, last year, you know, my, and the other thing too, my dad's getting a little bit older and he was a buck hunter and, uh, but you know, he just can't get out anymore uh, to do the kind of hunting that I do. But, you know, he's always been interested in elk. And uh, last year I arranged a hunt on private land and I told my dad, you know, I'm going to take you, you know, he can't get more than just a few steps from the road you know he's in that poor of health but uh you know the man the man raised me he took me hunting when i was probably not very fun to take hunting and and i, and I certainly want to get him out there so we arranged a cow elk hunt and it was really to mainly to get him one and i took my son too but i thought you know what I, I, I didn't have a deer and I thought I was going to go on my third year of not getting a deer freezer empty that that is such a desolate feeling back to eating chicken uh, and uh, I thought you know I should buy a cow elk tag just in case I get I get a chance at one too and uh so we we planned the hunt for late October. I think we had four days. We went and uh, we went and stayed in the cabin on one of the leases that I run my uh, hunting hunting uh, operation on. And long story short, the only guy that got a shot was me. And so Ryan Avery, here you go, buddy. I know I've been evading you for months. I would admit that I got a cow elk. It's just because I wanted to tease you, but yeah, buddy, I got a cow, a cow elk. And um, uh, but I'm not going to give you the picture. I guess it'll be on Rockslide. You'll probably hijack it. Everybody, be ready for the memes. Ryan's been waiting for this day for ten years. He's been trying to get me to hunt elk. So I did get a cow elk last year with Dad. It was a very special thing to get an animal with my dad. And I actually tried to give him first shot, but the elk were getting away and he just, he just didn't have time to get on them. And, you know, we'd already made a commitment of, you know, we got to get at least one. And so uh, I, I took the shot, I shot a yearling cow, uh, the old 270 Winchester short. First time I've ever pointed at an elk. It did not disappoint. Uh, full body penetration. I hit uh, just right at heart level, right in the little pocket there, uh, 220 yards, I think it was. And um, uh, my, my friend, Matt, is a butcher, and uh, Matt Capson. Uh, and uh, I, I, it was cold and snowy when I, when I, when I cleaned the elk. I, I could tell where I hit it, but I didn't see an exit hole. And I was kind of bummed. I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to tell Ryan Avery I didn't get an exit hole. Man, he's going to be all over me. Uh, and But it was dark and snowing, so I just got the elk all ready. We, we had one more day to hunt, um, got into some more elk, but never got a shot. And uh, then I got it down to Matt Capson, and I told him, you know, tell me if you find that bullet. You know, I'd like to know what happened. Well, he called me. Uh, I, I aged that elk, too. I think Matt aged it about 20 days for me. And uh, he did find it. 
And actually, when the bullet went in, uh, it, it, it hit the heart and uh, a, a big chunk of the bullet, but it turned or was turning before it hit the heart and ended, come, ended up coming out clear back on the opposite side, like like above the end of the back strap, you know, above the ham back in there. It, it went out. I couldn't believe it. And uh, so, Ryan, I did get full penetration. In fact, I got more than full penetration because I went in, took a left, went through the whole body, went out the top. So there you go, buddy. The old, the old 270 did what it was supposed to. So anyways, I, I did I did get that elk. Um, I did end up getting a deer last year. You're going to see that in Breaking the Slump. But man, it was really nice to get back to elk hunting. It really was. I got to spend some time with my dad. I got I got to impact an increasing elk population that that our fishing game says is over over objective. And, um, and, and it was just fun. So, you know, I'm not going to go dedicate my life to cow elk hunting, but I am going to make some time time for it each year. A lot of times I'm hunting, I don't even buy an elk tag because I don't want to be distracted by it. I'll probably still follow that model because I got to be I got to be pretty careful um, not not screw up my deer hunting. But if there's an opportunity to harvest cow elk, I, th- I think I'm going to take it more often than not. Okay. So um, I, I talked with a lot of guys about this that really have either they've either been focusing on big bulls or bucks and stuff like that look for these opportunities to pick up these cow tags a lot of times they're undersubscribed especially for residents um you know there's ways to get them over the counter um leftover lists you know things like that really really look for those opportunities um you know if you're hunting in an area where the elk may be impacting the deer uh that's what i'm going to be doing the next couple of years i don't know if i'll shoot an elk every year, but I'm, I'm definitely not going to turn my nose nose up at it, uh, especially if I'm hunting somewhere that maybe I can hunt some mule deer by shooting a cow elk. So anyways, that's my uh, bloviating on hunting cow elk. And uh, like I said, I've heard from a a lot of other guys too that are that are thinking the same thing, and are you know really really taking a hard look at what elk populations are doing, and they're going to take advantage of it too. So, okay, uh, the last podcast I wrapped up with that first chapter of my book. That was actually the the sub chapter of the first chapter uh, that I read to you. That was uh, the the story on the one that started it all, the buck that really kind of pushed me over the edge and made me decide this is what I want to do. Uh, uh, one of the things I want to do in my life. It's not the only thing I do but it's one of the things I want to do was buck hunt. And uh, by the grace of God, I've been able to do that for a lot of years. Uh, But um, I stopped in that chapter. Uh, There's another sub chapter. It's a little bit more about me, my roots. I was going to read that today and uh, we'll wrap up the podcast with that. And like I said, as time allows and I do podcasts, I will be going through my uh, first book, Hunting Big Mule Deer. How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. It's available on Amazon. Both my books are. Um, Unfortunately, Amazon rules the world, so no better place to publish a book than Amazon because they can get it out to people fast, faster than I can. So if you're interested in it, check it out on Amazon. If not, just hang around on the the Rockcast, and I'll be reading from it. So I'm going to start with uh, the second half of the first chapter. This subchapter is called My Roots. My roots. I was born in 1969. I grew up in the 70s, a time when mule deer hunting was changing. The boom was over, but deer hunting was still pretty good. Deer drives, group hunts, 4x4s, and 30-06 rifles were the tactics and equipment of the day. My dad and his three brothers all owned binoculars, but they didn't use them much. 
We typically did a stand and a push in the morning, then hunted nearer from the road the rest of the day. They weren't lazy by any means. That's how it was done back in the day. My dad was the buck hunter of the bunch. All of his brothers had taken nice deer, but it was dad who had taken the most. Cool, calm, and collected, he was able to make the shots when it counted. Hunting in groups, the best shot usually got the big one. It was my grandpa, Ed Denning, who really started buck fever in the Denning clan, but it really started for him in the islands of the Pacific. He was in the 2nd Marine Division fighting against Japan in World War II. Grandpa was, among other duties, a sniper. That meant he had a scope when the other enlisted men only had open sights. He became a fantastic shot. When your quarry can shoot back, you develop a quickness and precision that can't be learned any other way. Grandpa brought those shooting skills home with him. He was genuinely a great shot. It had become become instinct for him to be a great shot. By the late 50s, his four sons were old enough to hunt. They all cut their teeth in some of the best Boone and Crockett country in the West. Get a map and draw a 50-mile circle around Soda Springs, Idaho, then check the record books and you'll see what I mean. In the day, some true giants were regularly coming out of this area. It was a mix of aspen, sage, rimrock, and buckbrush, prime buck habitat, and the country where I later learned to hunt mule deer. They hunted it harder than most, and over the years, the racks piled up. Grandpa made many a great shot during those days. 300 yards on running bucks, head shots, standing shots, shots with no time to think, long shots with no conscious range estimation. Just let the mind take over and shoot. And my dad saw it all. It shaped him as a rifleman. It was the late 1960s, a time when most people agreed that big mule deer were at their peak. Grandpa, Dad, and his three brothers got to experience an era that will never come again. It seems my dad was the most interested in big mule deer. There were a few elk around then, and as it is even now, elk drew a few of the Denning clan away from focusing on big mule deer. Dad hunted elk, but given the chance, he was all about chasing bucks. My dad was one of those heroes of the era who wasn't afraid to bring a child into the world while he was still very young. He was 19 and my mom was 18 when I was born. That meant my earliest memories of him and when was when he was in his early 20s. I remember he'd fiddle with guns after work in the evening. Ot sixes, 243s, muzzle loaders, 300 Winchester Magnums, 22 rifles and pistols. He liked them all and shot them all. My grandpa was a mechanic and built his own reloading equipment. Go figure. We'd spend many evenings in his basement working up loads. I remember one load Dad was working on. He was shooting a 30 6 then and was on a quest for speed. He and Grandpa kept piling the powder into the military surplus cases until they could barely seat the bullets. At the range, Dad shot the gun, and by the extra recoil he felt, he was just sure he'd broken through 3,000 feet per second, something only, ma- only the magnums of the era could do. When we got home and Dad started cleaning the gun, he found a big crack behind the action in the stock. What would you expect from a guy who uses homemade reloading equipment? He had to back that load off a few grains. I later inherited that gun as my first deer rifle, and every time I'd see that crack, I'd think how cool my dad was. He would often load my sister and me in the truck and take a shooting. I don't remember when I first shot a gun. It likely wasn't a memorable event, as Dad was always working with guns. 
When fall would roll around, he and my Uncle Mark, who lived right next door to us, would gather up the horses, guns, and gear and head for the buck country. I was too little to go, but I have memories of bucks hanging in the garage after those hunts and Dad retelling the stories. It was just a few years later, when I was about eight years old, that Dad started taking me on some of his mule deer hunts. He would wake me hours before sunrise and drive into the sagebrush hills east of Idaho Falls, Idaho. It was cold, and for the most part, I was bored, but he was planting a seed as good fathers do. Nearly 40 years later, I realized just how unselfish that was. I didn't realize at the time how much he was sacrificing to bring me along. I was always cold, and if I wasn't crying, I was still making way too much noise for him to ever get onto a buck. He kept me close to the road for and the truck for safety, and I'm sure his success rate plummeted, but still he took me, and I love him dearly for that. I remember one fall about 1977 or 78 when Dad invited me and my little sister to deer camp. Grandpa, Dad, and his brothers had set up an epic camp in some southeast Idaho country, complete with wall tent, wood-burning stove, horses, and enough groceries to feed Patton's army. It was only reachable, or it was reachable by car, so my mom drove us up in her 64 Chevy Impala. Once there, I was like an ADD kid who'd forgotten to take his pills. I'd brought my new Benjamin pellet gun, along, and no living thing was safe, including humans. I explored the forest around camp, shot at pine hens, burned my hand on the stove, and accidentally loosened Grandpa's horse, Daisy. Mom kept us in camp while Dad hunted a few miles away on horseback with his brothers. Dad killed a beautiful 190-gross typical buck, spreading 28 inches on that hunt. These were the kind of bucks that Boone and Crockett had in mind when they wrote the books. He was simply gorgeous. Dad hung the buck from the game pole in camp and even let me shoot it in the eye. The only place he said you could kill a buck with a pellet gun. Oh, the sweet memories I have of him and deer camp. Over the next few years, he continued to take me on some of his hunts. He always talked about how smart, big, mature mule deer bucks were. He told me stories of bucks hiding on the ground as his brothers walked close by. He had tales of bucks so big he thought they were bull elk. My Uncle Mark still ribs him about one of those giants dad let get away. And of course, stories of the ones that didn't get away. I listened closely, and by the time I was 16 and hunting some on my own, I realized just how special big mule deer were. I discovered how much I enjoyed hunting them. Dad always had a mantra about killing big deer. Anybody can get lucky and kill a big deer once in a lifetime, but very few people can do it twice. For that to happen, you have to do it on purpose. Those words sank deep and later on became the challenge I wanted to meet. Then there was my friend, Carrie Hansen, who was the local celebrity buck hunter of the day. He was nearly a decade older than me and one of the nicest guys I've ever known. Carrie was kind enough to take me along on some of his buck hunts. I followed him around the southeast Idaho foothills like a good dog follows its owner. Carrie had a 7 mag, but I only had an aught 6. He was an expert on a dirt bike, but I just rode an old three-wheeler. Carrie nicknamed me the Irrigator. He also showed me how far you could go in a chained-up Ford pickup. That was before there were many off-road restrictions, and I'm ashamed to admit that we probably made a few new ones along the way. Kerry was an excellent shot. When a buck would jump up, I was usually firing wildly from the ground to the sky. Kerry would just settle down and kill him. He showed me by example how to make shots when the pressure was on. 
Although I just fumbled along in his shadow, I learned so much about buck hunting from him. Kerry taught me about hunting the rut and how to hunt the quakies, where so many big bucks hide during the season. I cherish all those memories, and I'm thankful that he was willing to take a loudmouth teenager like me along. I likely wouldn't have chosen this path I'm on if it wasn't for my friend, Kerry Hansen. I love him like a brother. I hope we get to hunt together at least one more time in this life. When we get to heaven, I'm going to find Carrie and we'll head for the buck country, just like in the good old days. That was in the mid-1980s, and people were starting to hunt mule deer in the most remote places they could find, places that only a few years before rarely, if ever, saw a mule deer hunter. Around that time, Ike Ellis, who later became somewhat of a mentor to me, killed a fantastic Southeast Idaho typical netting 211 and 28 inches Boone and Crockett. He killed that buck in the high country just a mile or so from where my family hunted the lower brush country. Suddenly, every serious deer hunter I knew, including me, wanted to hunt the high and lonesome. I wasn't as interested in hunting the lower elevation brush country I'd grown up on. I wanted to be on the highest, farthest peak looking over several Boone and Crockett bucks a week. I started investing my time in breaking horses, collecting gear, and scouting. I read everything I could on mule deer and studied the most successful hunters out there. I began finding some pretty big deer, and although I hadn't killed one, I was slowly starting to get traction. In 1991, I applied for my first out-of-state deer tag in Wyoming, something my father had only done once in his lifetime. He scratched his head and asked why would I quit hunting all the country I'd grown up in. I'm not quitting. I'll hunt both, was my answer. As a good dad always does, he got involved in my new high country pursuits. He even backpacked with me five miles into Wyoming's Hoback Range to scout mule deer one summer, just a few months after he'd had serious back surgery. The next two years, 91 and 92, I found several really good bucks, including a 200-inch non-typical. But again, they escaped me. I was committed to succeed and was really starting to enjoy the hunt just beyond the antlers. So I kept on, undeterred. Then the winter of 1992-93 hit. It devastated mule deer herds across the West and is still the worst I've seen. Mule deer hunting got really tough after that, but thankfully I just couldn't accept the fact that the good times were really over. I hunted for three more seasons, taking average bucks each year. Then in the summer of 1995, I started seeing a few really big bucks showing back up in the herd. Not uncommon after killer winters, as only the best survive. It was the season of 1996, after six years of complete focus on hunting big mule deer, that I took my first really big buck, the one in the opening story of this book. I was alone when I killed that buck, but true to form, Dad, has met, Dad made his way to camp, five miles on horseback in a snowstorm, to help me get the buck and camp out. There was no one else in the world I'd rather have had there for the moment. Back at camp that night, we cooked tenderloin and onions on the wood burner and talked about all our deer hunts. Sitting there with him in my old army tent, I knew that he loved me and I loved him. Even if for just one night, I was the luckiest man alive. It was only a few short years later that his earlier back surgery would cause complications that would prevent him from ever riding a horse or hunting backcountry bucks again. I remember our last backcountry hunt in 1998. He was in severe pain and we had to leave early. Riding back to the truck, I knew I was losing my hunting partner, and I did. I'll never be able to replace him, ever. I thank God for the times in mule deer country that we shared.
Up until that point, I was just trying to complete a goal of killing a really big deer, but that buck changed it from a goal to a lifelong pursuit. I'd learned that it was possible to get beyond luck and kill a big mule deer on purpose, just as Dad had said. I'm so thankful for those years he invested in me. Without him, I don't know what I'd be doing, and you'd likely be watching TV right now. Decades later, the desire is still there and probably stronger than ever. I hope to kindle something similar in you. If more people care about big mule deer, then their chances of surviving and even thriving in an ever-changing world are more likely. <laughs>